Good morning. We have been working our way through the resurrection story, the story of Easter. And I started, we started a, a couple months ago, actually, by the time it's, it's all said and done, after Easter, we'll have been in this two months. And our, our, our intention was, our desire was to um, slow down a bit on the story itself. A lot of times we rush through the, the Easter story and resurrection, we just kind of get to it and, and move on. Beginning of the year, I, I challenged and begged and pleaded and asked and encouraged you guys to, to make this a year where we desire authenticity in our faith, to make this a year where we don't just um, go through the motions, but that what we say we believe truly plays out in our lives and, and goes to that. And I said we're going to have um, many different ways through this story, through the history, historical account of Jesus and what, what happened in um, the last week of his life, and we're going to be able to come across and be f- um, kind of confronted by these different characters in the story. Characters that would have been ones that, that God would have, um, that would be encouraging to us, saying that, man, I want my life to look like this person. And other ones that would be confronted with the fact that maybe some of our lives look too much like this character. We've been encouraging guys to read through the, the account, the gospel, in, every, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John every week. So by the time we get to Resurrection Sunday, we will have um, been through them twice each. We're actually going to have um, next Sunday is, is Palm Sunday. We're not actually going to be talking about Palm Sunday. It's going to be the death of Jesus, but that's where we are, so that's what we're going to go through. But for that whole week, we'll have a Passion Week study for you guys to go through. Um, we've, we've decided to do a, a sunrise service um, right in front of the museum on the grass right here. It's for you hipsters out there. You'll be like, sweet, it's unplugged, all right? Like, it's going to be like super, like, bring your own chair, no amenities at all. Um, that's going to happen at 734 right at sunrise, and then we'll have our 930 and 11 here. And then we also wanted to, um, when we, we started this series, we said that there are present-day implications to the resurrection of Jesus, meaning that when we, we are confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, it has to play out in action in our life. And we use the idea of the table around communion, where Jesus invited enemies and, 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 and friends around the table. He presented his truth and began this new covenant around a table. And so the week after Easter, we're going to do a pancake feed here. We're gonna, we've, we as the church, the Revolution 22, have invited a bunch of nonprofits that we, we partner with all the time to show up. And we've asked all of you to bring a friend, a, a coffee shop companion, a, a classmate, a, a roommate, a a co-worker, whatever it may be, to come join. And the idea would be that we'd serve together and then we'd eat together. And around the table, we'd be able to experience the kingdom of God the way that it was intended to, all walks of life, all different spots. Being able to hear the gospel or share the gospel or just hear someone's story, invite them to coffee later that week and get to know them. And so that's happening the week after. So we slowed way down on this and it kind of made us, uh, fixated us on different spots. So I want to kind of do a quick recap of what's led up to where we are and then we're going to dive in to the crucifixion. I will say this. Um, this is, I guess, a little bit of a hard message. So if you have young, young kids in here that you want to maybe not have them hear some of that stuff when we get there, feel free to either take them out or explain later how the gospel plays out in that. So um, we, a quick backdrop of events. So the Last Supper where Jesus implemented the new covenant, where we, we talked about that and what communion went through. And then from the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples, Judas has now left and gone to get the, the guards to betray Jesus at, um, at the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus is, is in excruciating pain for what he's enduring. The temptation, the, the, the pressure that's coming on him is, is causing some very, very, very obvious physical interaction with Jesus, and the disciples are wrestling with that. And so we talked through that. Well, at the garden is where Jesus is arrested. Judas shows up with the guards and, and takes him there. Now, from the garden, they take him to Anna's house or Caiaphas's house right there. Those stairs today, modern day, are still in place in Israel. And so I want to kind of give you guys an idea from 
the Garden of Gethsemane to the time that Jesus finally walks out to Calvary or Golgotha, he, they, they estimate somewhere around three to four miles of walking for Jesus in this last night. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot, but do that while being immensely beaten. And I'm sure you'd probably struggle quite a bit, not to mention that it was not flat ground. Okay, and so he gets arrested. He goes into Caiaphas' house. They do this illegal trial um, with the Sanhedrin there. And, and Danny talked about the last week. It was awesome. I'd encourage you to go listen to it. And, and in, their, in that trial, they convict him of, of blasphemy. They, they say that he, he deserves death. But the Jews couldn't, they couldn't crucify anyone. That was a Roman role. That was something that the Romans um, could only do. And so what they did is in this spot, they convict him. It's super late at night. I mean, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., they convict him. And they have to wait until morning to go to Pilate's house. Now, we don't get this, but it was common rule for when, when someone's convicted of death that they could be beaten. So there's a good chance that in this spot, in the, the one cistern that's near Caiaphas' steps locally today, there's, there's still holes in the rock above where they would take the rope over to hold hands up so that they could flog or whip someone. And so most likely Jesus got some form of flogging, some form of beating in there. We know that the, the, they spit on him, which to us, none of us really like to be spit on, but to them in that day, uh, this is like the worst form of showing indignation to someone, to spit on them. It was really, really, really horrible. And so, so they're spitting on him. We know that they're punching him, and he's getting kind of beat up in the face. He's now in the cistern for probably an hour, two hours, completely isolated alone. His disciples have left him. By this point, Peter has already <laughs> denied him three times. He's sitting alone, buried in this, this little hole down there, waiting for the next day. Early the next morning, they take him to Pilate. Well, Pilate questions him and does this little thing and doesn't really get much. So then he sends him to King Herod, which is way past Caiaphas' house. And they go to King Herod, and King Herod says, I don't want anything to do with you. So then they send him back to Pilate. And that's where we pick up the story where we all know that, okay, I'm going to release to you Brabus or Pilate, and this whole kind of thing happens there. The whole thing really is interesting because Pilate doesn't necessarily want to do it, but yet he succumbs ultimately because he's afraid of his, of his, of his own life and really his, his position. And so Pilate, we hear it, releases Barabbas to them, who in their day was a, was a horrible, horrible murderer thief, like had every reason to be crucified, but, but the people would rather have him than Jesus released. And so then that's where this story picks up. And it's in Matthew chapter 27. So I would encourage you guys, 27 through 44, I would encourage you guys, you can read on why I kind of talk about it. I'm going to skip over some of it. I would encourage you to dive back into it and look at it a little bit later. But, but we don't get, it's really unique. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get one word to define what happens in the crucifixion. Right? It says, it says and then they scourged him and led him out to be crucified. And then that's all we get. We don't, we don't get anything else. And in fact, none of the gospel writers define crucifixion. Now, there are two schools of thoughts as to why that is. And I think both are right. But, but one is that every single person in this day knew exactly what crucifixion was. There was no one that was confused by that. There was no one that was like, wait, what, what is crucifixion? To us, you know, thanks to Mel Gibson for giving us some picture of it, right? Where we got the passion. We're like, oh, okay, that's kind of what it looks like, right? There were some things he was wrong in that. But we, we, we don't understand crucifixion. So the first school of thought is, okay, they don't define it because, well, everyone knows what crucifixion is. But then there's a second reason why they don't define it, and we'll get to that in just a second. What I want to do is, is explain the crucifixion a little bit. Um, crucifixion was not invented by the Romans. It was invented by Persians. 
Persians were the ones that began it. Crucifixion was the most horrific way to die. In fact, it was a very, very inefficient way to death. In fact, it was a long death, a long painful death. Sometimes someone could hang on a cross for up to three days before dying. And so crucifixion was a, it was a, it was a horrible thing. Um, the, the Romans, however, had perfected it. And they estimate some 30,000 Jews had been crucified in Jesus's, around Jesus' day. So crucifixion was very, very common. It was, it was, in fact, a lot of the Roman citizens and Roman writers and authors talk about how um, a Roman citizen shouldn't be crucified. That was only for the lesser than, the slaves. Roman citizens were crucified, but they had to be approved by the king for a Roman citizen to be crucified. So this is, a, this is a really, really horrific thing. And for us, we've seen kind of passion, but I want to I talk a little bit about it so you can understand what's exactly happening. So Jesus at this point has probably been flogged by the Jewish leaders. He's been spit on, he's been punched in the face, and then he's walked over to Pilate, has to walk all the way over to, to Herod, and then he's back at Pilate in Antonio's fortress, and he's there. And when, when Pilate finally says, all right, you are to be, you are to be scourged, and crucified. He sends them back, and then we know that the entire legion of Roman guards are in Antonio's fortress, kind of away from everyone else, and they're mocking Jesus. But they're doing that after he's been scourged. So to scourge someone, what they would do is they would, you picture a, a big, tall kind of wood post that was in the ground, and they would tie their hands up exceptionally high, and then they would be naked, okay? All the way naked, maybe a loincloth at the most, but not much there, fully exposing their back, and then we've, you got the cat of nine tails or however they display it, but essentially it was a whip with bones or metal fragments on the end of the whip. And Jewish law said that you couldn't be whipped more than 40 times, and then they lowered it down to 39. And one rabbi wrote that 39, to be scourged 39 times is to be one time away from death. So it's, it's excruciatingly painful. And the whip, we've, we've seen it, we've talked about it, but what the whip would do is they would whip, and it, it, it connects and then pulls and so what it does is it, the, the idea is that it's going to literally remove all of the outer skin and then the lower levels of, of muscle and stuff as well, exposing. So if you've ever seen a, like a light cut, it kind of bleeds that light, bright red. If you get a really, really deep cut, you see that like that dark, dark blood coming out. That's coming out of Jesus' back. He's whipped. And, and there's no certainty that the Romans held to the Jewish law. So we don't know how many times he's whipped. But it's a lot, okay? And he's scourged, and his back is, is, is fully bloody, and, and sometimes it would be down into their, into their butt and then their back thighs as well. It would, just, it would just rip the flesh away, exposing tendons. You could see bones. You could see, it, was, it was a very, very horrific and gross thing, okay? And so Jesus experienced that. Then they send Jesus into Antonio's fortress, and we get this little interaction that it's interesting. Matthew has, from the side of the crucifixion, he has all the other people that, that, that abandoned Jesus. He doesn't really tell much from Jesus' standpoint. It's, it's, the, it's what, the, what Pilate does. It's what Caiaphas does. It's what the, the chief priests do. It's what this man Simon of Cyrene does. Everyone kind of, he tells a story from everyone else around Jesus, but doesn't really talk about it in Jesus' day. So then, then the guards take Jesus in, and they put a, a they say it, scarlet or purple, Purple was the color of royalty. It was most likely probably like a, a burgundy red because it was a Roman's cloak that they would use for when they were warm. And they put that over Jesus. And so they put this thick cloak over Jesus and then they make a crown of thorns. I, I saw the thorns are super, super long, very, very sturdy. They don't break easy and they come to a very, very fine point at least. And there was a number of versions of those. But they make a little crown and they put that on him and then they hand him a reed. And what they're doing, it's really unique. They don't, 
They don't know this. Now, these Roman guards are most likely Romans. They're not Jewish. So they don't really have much of the Jewish upbringing or the Jewish school of thought. They haven't really experienced other than what maybe they'd saw in their day. So these are just guards that are doing what they normally do to anyone else, except for when someone's crucified, they would always make a sign writing on it like what they were crucified for. So that it was a deterrent for other people to not break the law in that way. And so on there, on Jesus, as we know, they wrote, Pilate had written, King of Jews. And so they were dressing him like a king, putting him in scarlet, which they had no idea they were doing this. But, but in Isaiah, we, we get the, the picture that, that, that the Messiah will be clothed in scarlet because he's taking on our sins. Right? And so they have no idea. They're mocking him as a king. What's unique is the Jewish leaders had already mocked him as the son of God and the Messiah. Now they're being mocked. Now he's being mocked as a king. And both of them are mocking him for what he truly is. They're both mocking him, and they have no idea how ironic it is that he is actually the Messiah and the king, and they're mocking him. Well, what they're doing is they, they put this cloak on him, and then they put this reed in place, and they make fun of him. We know that the, from the Gospel of John, we see that he gets hit, punched in the face, and then they take the reed out of his hand. Um, Revelation talks about the, the seraphim, the idea of holding something as royalty, that he will come in with that again. Right? But this time they take it out of his hand, and they start beating him in the head with this reed which would then drive the thorns into his scalp and deeper in. And so if you, if you picture it, now if you've ever had a head wound, there's a lot of blood comes out of a head wound. Well, a lot of thorns on the head being smashed in and being punched and being spit on and being mocked. They do this for a season, a little bit of time. And then they do what I never thought of, is they, they pull the cloak off. Well, if you've ever had an open wound and cloth put on it, it cauterizes but then when you pull it open again, it rips open everything. And so they pull the cloak off of Jesus, and that begins the trek to be crucified. Now, from Antonio's fortress to where Jesus is being crucified, it's called Golgotha, means skull in Aramaic. It, we get our word Calvary from Latin, skull, so this idea that's where they're, they're marching him out. It would have been put into this spot of extremely, like, <sighs> there's a row, the Via Dolores, or I'm saying that wrong, Della Rosa, and it's, it's a highway that like essentially goes along the northern gate of, of Jerusalem, and it would have been where everyone that was coming from Galilee or this way, making their way by, this was a highway, and the Romans did that because they wanted Jesus or they wanted anyone that was being crucified to be in a very, very specific thoroughfare to deter other people from doing this. They estimate somewhere from 500 to 650 yards that he has to go from Antonio's fortress, from being mocked by these guards, now going out. Now, he wasn't carrying the full cross. Okay, I, like I love the, the visual that the full cross comes. The full cross would have weighed over 300 pounds. Um, usually what they would do is they would have the uprights already mounted in the ground and in place, and then the person that was being crucified would carry the horizontal piece. And they would usually, they would usually strap it around their arms and put their arms at this way. Now remember, if your back is scourged, stretching your, your shoulder blades like this and putting up and over this, and then they would tie their hands to this, this side piece. This side piece, by the way, would weigh anywhere from about 75 to 125 pounds. Okay, so it's, it's extremely heavy. So they put this around Jesus, and then he walks. We know, we get a, we get a little bit of, from Matthew, we get this, this Simon of Cyrene shows up on scene because Jesus can't carry the, the cross. He actually can't physically do it. And so the, the four guards that would normally follow someone that's being crucified, most likely there was a larger crowd because it was Jesus, but there's these cards that are around him. They compel, they force this Simon of Cyrene to carry his, his cross for him, to carry it for him. 
Now, what's unique about that is, is the Gospel of Mark actually gives him by name, and we know a little bit later in, in Scripture that there's two boys that are followers of Jesus from this area. So the reason why I think that Simon's name is said is because I think this experience is what brought Simon to the faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that in his sons later on in the, in the book of Acts. Could be a different Simon, but either way, that's right. He's somewhere from northern Africa. We have a lot more detail about him. If it was someone that never came in faith or someone that necessarily was just some random stranger that we didn't ever hear anything else, most likely he wouldn't have been by name. It was just they compelled this dude to carry it. And so there he is. He's carrying this cross out. Now, he's carrying it out, and he gets to the spot. Now, what they would do when they got to where they were going, most of the time, the cross, just so you guys know, wasn't the Latin cross where we see it like the, you know, like the little lowercase t. Most of the time, it was a capital T is the way it would happen. They would put this on top of this, and that's where it's at. We can assume that Jesus was, was a Latin cross. I don't think it really matters, but only because we know that they hammer the sign King of the Jews above him on the cross. Most of the time, they would just hang it around their neck and do it that way if they were on the, the T-style cross. So they get there. Now, to do that, they would lay the, the, the cross beam on the ground, and they would, I'm sure, not gently push the, the person being crucified to the ground. Well, picture, again, your back is completely open wounded and you're shoved down into the dirt and then put on this cross that I, I can guarantee they didn't sand okay so it's a rough rough cross beam and they would take and they would push they would stretch the arms out as far as they could and that was intentional stretch the arms out as far as they could and then they would drive a nail that was probably about a, a centimeter in thickness through the two small bones right here on the wrist and and I'm I read there's a lot of medical stuff, but I'm not medical, but there's a cluster of nerves right here that when you hit that, it like just sends fiery pain up your arms. I also think the other thing that happens is when you hit here, it forces your hand to tighten, so then causes cramping. Okay, so they would ram hammer both of his, his wrists in like this, and then they would get him up on the cross, and they'd get him in place, and then what they would do is they'd take the legs, and they would move them so they were bent like this so that the foot of your, hand, your feet were over one or the other and they'd run the nail right through the arch of your foot. But in a position where it was bent, so it was so awkward that, like, you couldn't stand in that position if you really wanted to. And then they'd put it, and then he would be on the cross. And people would last sometimes three days there. They don't know why, other than maybe because it was the king of Jews or it was Jesus. They assumed that he was beaten a lot more and ridiculed a lot more than others. Um, but normally the way you would die on the cross isn't from the blood loss. It's from asphyxiation. Because what would happen is when you're stretched out like this very far, you can only breathe in so much. And when you're stretched out like this, you can't exhale very much. So what would happen is you'd start taking in carbon monoxide. And you'd get short and your, your lungs would fill up with fluid. The only way to get a good breath would be to push on your feet and pull in your elbows to stand up a little bit to get a good exhale and inhale. But doing that, you would rip your back up the, the back of the cross. And so to do, to get a breath, you do that. We know that Jesus said seven things on that cross. And it's almost certain that he would have had to have pushed up all seven times to say those things. And normally what they would do is if the person was there for too long, they'd come over and break their legs so they could no longer push themselves up and just hang. And they wouldn't be able to breathe. I mean, absolutely Horrific. This is like, it's the most inhumane and disgusting thing ever. And yet, none of the authors really tell you about it. We had to go to Mel Gibson to get a picture of it, right? When I was, like, younger Jen and I were dating, 
um, we were out out to dinner with some friends, and, and I, we kind of did that. We did it was like a day, so I picked up Jen, and then I picked up them, and they lived in Cuna, and so we were, we were eating dinner downtown, and we were driving out. It was late, and I was driving out the connector, and I remember I was driving in the left lane of the connector, and 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 I was coming up, and it was kind of a dead connector because it was time. I mean, Boise, it's late, whatever, you know, no one's out, and 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 so I'm I'm driving, and like last second. I see out of the corner of my eye in my, my right passenger mirror these headlights coming right for my car. And so I slam on the brakes and kind of go over to the side, like towards the concrete median, and this truck just misses me. I mean, just misses the front of me and just tags the median. Boom, hits it, and then takes off and just keeps going. It's driving. I mean, he's like everywhere. So I'm, this is a drunk driver. So I pick up the phone. I call the police and say, hey, I'm following a drunk driver. I'm going 55, 60. He's got to be going 80, 85. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what is it? I'm like, it's a silver silver Dodge truck. Uh, it's going to be at Eagle Road in like any minute now. Please hurry up. And like right when I'm, I'm on the phone with him, I pull up to Eagle Road. And uh, as I'm coming to Eagle Road on the freeway, I see this just like this ATVs laid over on the street in the, in the, the road and this trailer upside down, this truck sideways and kind of off the side of the road there. It's like, it's like the slew. Well, what happened is he had hit a truck pulling a trailer. The trailer flew off and hit another car. And then that car hit another car. And it just kind of made this huge mess, right? And so we're I'm pulling up. I'm the first on scene to this horrible mess. I'm on the phone. The, fortunately, the police are close to Eagle Road, but they, he was gone. Well, after that, they, you know, they're asking each of us our questions. Okay, so what did you see? How did it go? I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is what happened, you know, and I'm in it in the moment because I got it down. My blood's drying. This is how it is. It was a silver Dodge Dakota. I mean, I think I even saw a little nick on this one spot. Like, I'm sure it's gone now because he obviously, you know, hit the concrete, and I had the, like, I had this thing down. I fixated. I knew exactly what it was. I'm like, okay, you sure it was silver? I'm like, yeah, it's totally, totally silver Dodge Dakota. Okay, sounds good. Well, then we, they let us go, and so I drive, and I go to Meridian Exit because that's where we go to get off to my friend's house, and there's the truck and the police officer having pulled over. And it wasn't a silver Dodge Dakota. It was a green Chevy. I could not have been any more off, right? Like, and I was young, so I can't blame my eyes, but I was so wrong. Well, there's a theory. When you see something horrific, you experience something horrific, sometimes you, you, you missee things. You, you misjudge because of, of panic or pain or whatever may happen. I think that's why we don't get the definition of crucifixion. Maybe, yeah, it's because every single person understands it, but because when I tell you what Jesus endured... Every single one of you, and I can see it in your faces, we start to sink in our chair. Maybe we find ourselves disgusted. Maybe we start feeling anger. But really, when you think about it, and what he experienced was absolutely horrific. In fact, we get our word excruciating from out of the cross, the Latin word, which is crucifixion. So what he experienced was truly excruciating. Right? But what he experienced was about this much physically. And from here to the roof, spiritually. Because we already covered this in the garden. What Jesus was enduring physically was horrible, horrific, terrible, shouldn't happen. But that was the smallest part of what he was experiencing. That was the, the littlest part of what he was having to go through was that. The largest part was taking on the wrath and, and the judgment of the sin that you and I deserve, that we deserve. Drinking that cup to the last drop. That was the most horrific and excruciating and painful thing that Jesus did for us. Yet we can relate to the physical idea, right? Thinking of the back being torn like that. We can, we can relate to that. But the back being torn was so small in comparison to what Jesus actually experienced for us. So small. In fact, 
I think that's what happens to most of us is we get fixated on, on certain details. Fear sets in and we, we get lost. And maybe some of you right now, you are in like a, just a hard season of life. There's been, you know, infidelity in your marriage or you're, you're, there's just addiction just through the, through the roof or whatever it may be. Like you're just, you're in a really, really, really hard spot. Maybe it's because of someone else's choices or maybe it's because of your choices or just circumstances, but life is hard. Physically painful, lonely, like you are experiencing like some really, really hard time. I'm not making small that. Please hear me on this, but I think maybe you're too fixated on it. And here, here's why I say it is because most all of us, in one way or another, we kind of end on two extremes, right? We, 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 but we always forget the most basic thing about what's going on in the cross. We, we find out in verse 54, we'll talk about it next week, but we find out the, the point of what's happening on the cross, right? The, the Roman guards say it. After the whole earthquake and everything happens, like, he truly was the son of God. That was him. Truly was. The, the kind of the climax is, is, is spoken by a Roman guard. But what he's, what, he's, what he's showing us, what God is doing for us, for you and your circumstances, is he is displaying to you not just in word, but in action, how much he loves you. I tell my, my girls, uh, the older two, I tell the little one too, Priscilla, but she's crazy, so she doesn't listen. But I tell Ava and Livia over and over and over again, you know how much I love you? I love you so much. I, I love you so, so much. And like, yeah, and we do this game about who loves more and whatever, and we do that whole thing. But what, what I always follow that up with, I mean, I always follow it up with this, and you, can, you could ask my girls this, test me on this. This will be awesome. I'll see how much more I'm failing as a parent. But either way, we all do it, right? <clears throat> I always say, who loves you the most? And they will always say, God does. And I want my kids, no matter what, I want my kids to know that God loves them more than I ever can love them. And here's, here's the harsh reality, dads. Pick on you for a second. Me too. Just what Jesus endured physically, I'm not sure I could do for my girls. I want to say I could. I want to say, you know what, I want you guys to believe in me and be cheering on behind. But I'm not even sure physically I could sustain what Jesus sustained for my girls. Yet again, that was this much. I mean, such a small amount of what he endured. The reason why we know God loves us is because we don't just have him saying it. We don't even have him just displaying it. And some of you are like, man, he's shown me in, oh, time and time again in my finances. He's shown me time and time again in my relationships, and you've seen it. But you know what? He's shown you once and for all in the cross. You, you realize there is no doubting how much he loves you when you look at the cross. I mean, there is no doubt. If you just looked at the physical side, not even the spiritual thing, if you just looked at the physical, not the whole like, hey, he's going to take on the sins for all of us so that we can have a right standing with God. No, if you take that out of it. If you just take the physical side, he more than displayed to you and me individually, I love you. Daniel last week talked about how what hung Jesus on the cross. Was it my sin or, or your sin or what put him there? And he said, no, he willingly walked there. Right? Jesus says, no one takes my life, but I willingly lay it down, Right? Jesus operating in God's will, even though he wrestled with that in Gethsemane, he operating in God's will shows just how much he loves you. And the problem is with us. We get so fixated on the wrong things. Who's going to get elected? Ah! And our lives fall apart because we're so afraid of our future. Where's God in this messy, broken world? He is present and alive, and he has shown it. He didn't just show it in theory. He lived it 
to the grave and then walked out of that grave and said, look, I'm here. See, what's unique, I was talking with a friend this week, we were talking about how Jesus displays, God displays this love for me before I'm even in existence. I, he, hasn't even, he hasn't even created me in my mother's womb, and he displays this love. And so for all of us in the room, that's very easy for us to recognize. This happened a, few th- a couple thousand years ago. Okay, it happened then, but it, it applies to today. But what we all wrestle with is the fact that this is the love that's meant to sustain us daily. Like this very thing, the cross is what sustains you and me on a daily basis so that when the world comes collapsing in and we feel immensely lonely and broken and the the circumstances are horrible, we can go, man, none of this makes sense, but at least, at least I know he loves me. No one can take that from me because he has displayed it to the farthest extent. That can never, ever, ever be taken from you, no matter how lonely you feel. How broken you feel, how sad you feel, that can never be taken from you. And you know what that does? That brings about a grace that we all struggle with. Some of us either accept it and, and surrender to it, and, and that's awesome. Others of us, we, we, we feel like we've got to keep doing stuff to earn God's love. If I do this, then he'll love me. That's self-righteousness. He has already displayed the most amount of love you will ever experience in your entire life, and no one will ever come close to in the cross. So why does this keep doing this way? Some of us want to be mad at God. Where are you, God? Why won't you do anything for me? But when we're reminded of the cross, we can't ask that question. We can ask it all day long, but we really shouldn't believe that because he is more than displayed where he is. I talked about this in the garden, is that Jesus didn't just take sin and death. He took everything that came along with it. He took loneliness Realize that he's the only one that will ever say that he was fully forsaken by God and every single person he loved. We will never be forsaken by our God. He took all the loneliness away. He took fear away. We don't have to be afraid of what comes. Our God is king. That's what, Jesus, that's what Matthew is lining up. Look, he's Messiah and he's king. Here's the Isaiah, here's Psalms, all these scriptures that are prophesied about that come to fruition in Jesus' death alone, not to mention the resurrection. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what you struggle with. I think a lot of times maybe it's, it's like that dodge in our life, you know? We're so fixated on it, and we're so certain. We're so certain. We, we, would, like, we would, like, argue until we're— I remember even Jen and, and my friends in the car going, was it, was it silver? I'm like, oh, yeah, it was totally silver. I am 100% confident of that. Man, I was a sucker bet. They could have gotten a lot of money out of me, right? We get so certain about our circumstances being what they are, and we forget to zoom out a little bit and go, whoa, 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 wait. God is doing something so much bigger. You realize, like, no matter how unloved you feel, we've experienced the most love you'll ever get from anyone. No relationship, no job, no amount of money, nothing will bring about the satisfaction that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Nothing. And I know you're in a church, you're like, yeah, I hear that all the time. Well, we don't live it. What about peace? Well, I can tell you right now, about 3 to 6 p.m., 2,000 plus years ago, there was not a lot of feeling of peace when Jesus was hanging on that cross. But once he got off, there was nothing but dashed hopes and dreams. Spoiler alert, he walks out of the, the grave, right? And once and for all, instilling in us a peace that we can hold on to that makes no sense. None. Hope? You want hope? How about a hope in the fact that you've been loved better than you will ever be loved and you didn't even exist before you did it? Companionship? 
Here's the, here's the best part. He did that for all who surrendered to him. He did that for all. And together we can be community. Together we can be it. Not because of us, because we stink and we're annoying and we're frustrating, right? Like we're going to rub each other's shoulders the wrong way. But because of the hope in Christ, we can now say we have one another. The band's going to come up and we're going we're gonna to worship some more. And I, I wish I could tell you all to like start wearing pink and cry more, but that's just me. I feel like a lot of times, and, and this isn't, I don't, I don't want this to be a, a guilt trip. Please hear me on this. I feel like a lot of times we are just unmoved or unchanged by the reality of what Jesus went through for us. And it's not meant to, it's not meant to take you to the spot, feel shame, like, oh, now I really got to love him because look what he did for me. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. It's that, it's that when, we, when we realize what Jesus did for us on the cross through the crucifixion, through the beatings, through the spitting, through the rejection, through all of those things, through the drinking of God's wrath that we deserve, all of those things, when we realize those things, I can't help but think our life would look differently. Even if we just realize, just, I mean, just a small amount of it. I can't help but think, man, maybe we shouldn't be so afraid of this world. Maybe we shouldn't operate in, out of fear as much as we do anyways. We start fighting with each other because we're so afraid of what one person believes or what one person thinks about us. Maybe it would change actually how our actions play out on a daily basis. For me, maybe, maybe it would be that I would be able to live it out more realistically and faithfully every day of the life. But I, I can't help but feel like if you're, if you're not in any way, shape, or form affected by what Jesus endured for you, then I, I, would, I would request that you would, you would spend a little bit more time with him because here's, here's what I know. If you're not affected by what he did for you, then you're never going to really understand the sweetness of his peace and grace to its entirety. If, you don't, if you're not moved by the fact that Jesus did this for you, there's nothing. I'm not saying you have to cry and wear pink. I'm not saying that, okay? That's just me, okay? But I'm saying if it doesn't affect you at all, then you're doing a lot on your own strength. If it's not, if it's not, if it's not, if it's not causing life change, not by your strength, but by him, if it's not causing a difference of peace when you're like, man, this makes no sense, but for some reason I have peace in this horrific time, you're not experiencing any of that then. His, his grace is, is a gift, and it was given to you as a gift, and anytime you receive an amazing gift, it, it, always, it always brings about some response, even for the most stoic of people. Well, thank you very much, right? But we, we're, we're comp- he has compelled us to live in light of this cross. We can look at something so gross, so horrific, so excruciatingly painful, and we can see the beauty on the other side. In a lot of ways, guys, that's our life. He looked at us so gross, so full of hate and anger and addiction and sin and ugliness. He said, (laughs) no, no, you don't see it yet, but I'm going to break through that, and I'm going to redeem from the inside. I'm going to take that angry person. I'm going to start softening their edges. I'm going to take that person that can't stop gossiping and I'm going to find them, help them to find contentment in me. I'm going to take that person that's so addicted to these things, I'm going to show them what it means to be led by the Spirit. But you can't see it on the outside. But I'm going to break right in. I'm going to redeem from the inside out. See, when we look at the cross, we see a mirror image of ourselves. Not because we are Jesus on the cross, although we absolutely deserve that because the cross is so disgusting and so horrific, as were we, prior to being redeemed by Christ. And because Jesus took that horrific and grossness and and ugliness and disgusting pain and came out of the grave, you and I walk out new, redeemed, 
with new desires, new hearts, new minds, new eyes, with the desire to live for his kingdom purposes today, not just for some future hope. I pray, Father, you, you love me um, in spite of who I am. The fact that you displayed that love through, through Jesus on the cross is um, very, in a lot of ways, unpalatable. I have a hard time stomaching what you were willing to do for me, um, what Jesus was willing to do for me. God, I, I am at times immensely broken by that, God. But it's in that brokenness, God, that you, you've brought about redemption. It's in that, in that breaking down of our pride and our ugliness and our sinfulness, God, that you say, no, 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 I have you for so much more than this. Don't you see it? God, for the person in the room that is just struggling to believe you love them, Oh, I just pray that you overwhelm them right now with your spirit. I pray that they would be, you'd somehow transport them to that day where Jesus is walking out on the cross and hung there. And they would recognize that, that, that Jesus paid every single bit of penalty that, him, that me, that anyone else deserved. That Jesus, and God didn't just say he loves us. He didn't just display it that he loved us. He went all the way. And no one will ever achieve that amount of love again, but we can rest in it and live in it and, so, and have it sustain us on a daily basis. God, I pray that you would help us to fully see what you've done for us. Help us to not get so fixated on the wrong things. Help us to see clearly what you're doing in our life for your glory and your glory alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.